Welcome to See the Change, the podcast where we talk to community builders and change makers and hear the stories that inspired them to take action for social change. I'm your host, Tanya Ayala. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you enjoy today's conversation. And if you do, please subscribe and write us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is part two of my conversation with Carrington Christmas, a Black Scotian Mi'kmaq and German two-spirit storyteller and advocate. Today, we delve deeper into current events surrounding treaty rights in Nova Scotia and reframing intergenerational trauma. Let's dive in. I wanted to to kind of segue into a, a different topic here. Um, I, I've seen in the news, uh, it's been in the media that there's a very serious um, conflict occurring in Nova Scotia with indigenous um, fishers uh, that are operating lobster um, operations and, well, quite frankly, the domestic terrorism that's being carried out against them. Um, To you as someone who has a connection to that region of, of Canada and to the community that's out there, what were your thoughts when you saw this kind of building up and you heard more about well you know we've talked a lot about education and I think it all goes down to a lack of education and understanding and I also think it's very intentional that you know as Canadians or, or people who live in Canada and have gone through the education system that we're always taught or, or maybe even internalized with the notion that Indigenous peoples did not have meaningful contributions or give meaningful contributions to the political, social, and historical context and creations of Canada as a country. It's as if instead we were a a burden or an impediment that needed to be addressed or resolved, a problem that needed to be solved, Mm -hmm. uh, a roadblock on the great path of settlement. Um, And so with that, there's just like this disdain of, oh my God, you know, these lazy natives, um, they constantly just get money from the government. They don't do anything. They're primitive cultures on their reserves. Most Canadians don't even know that reserves were created by the British. We didn't, we didn't create them. The band council governance structures created by the British. Um, those aren't reflective of how we live our lives at all. And so all of you know, those systems being imposed, but a lot of people don't know that. Mm-hmm. And so even the treaties that were signed, um, for Mi'kmaqs, we signed treaties back around the 1750s, I think. I don't remember the exact dates um, with the British. And it said through oral history that one of the first Mi'kmaq chiefs who signed treaty said to the British representative, I truly did not believe you were a human being. And because in our worldview, to be a human being is to have have peace, kindness, and friendship. And he didn't think that the British knew how to be a human. They didn't know how to be kind or have mm-hmm. friendship. And so by signing that treaty, we were actually going to teach them how to be a human. We were going to take them under our protection and show them how to live in coexistence with other communities. And that speaks to how Myanmar's perceived ourselves almost 300 years ago. It's, we are equal to the British, we are not below them. Mm-hmm. This is reciprocal, you know, that exchange. And so 
these treaties, they didn't give us rights to hunt or fish. They reaffirmed already existing natural rights, you know, comes from the creator. These are our lands. These are what we are going to hunt and fish on. And so the British don't get to say, oh, yes, you know, here's the right to fish. No, they're affirming already existing rights that we've had for thousands of years. And so treaties are always framed as something for Indigenous peoples, mm-hmm. not something that benefits all Canadians. And so because of this lack of understanding on, on what treaties actually mean and how without treaty you wouldn't have Canada, you wouldn't have these lands, mm-hmm. um, it's, oh, well, Indigenous peoples get these rights and I don't, so that's racism or that's inequality. But that, you know, we, we know that's not what it is. It's, right. these are our lands. I am, you know, you're going to create a country on top of my land and then tell me I have to abide by your federal regulations because you've decided that this is how it should be done. And, and so today what we have is Mi'kmaq exercising their inherent rights mm-hmm. to fish and hunt whenever they want but we we won't we don't do it whenever we want because we still have those teachings in our our culture about sustainability and that you you only take what you need from the land and so when you look at commercial fishermen non-indigenous commercial fishermen and and those organized those companies sorry who make millions of dollars Mm -hmm. and, and harvest way over anything sustainable and, are, and instead getting angry that Mi'kmaq are fishing outside of what the government has decided is a season and using that as an opportunity to just enact a lot of violence and hatred. Yeah. The thing is about, if it was about conservation and sustainability, they wouldn't have killed, you know, over a hundred or I don't know how many exact, but live lobsters. They wouldn't have poured yeah. cement on them. If it was about conservation you wouldn't attack people. Uh, you wouldn't burn down a building or light a car on fire. You don't do anything. This is an excuse to be violent and hateful because there's there's no conversations taking place. It's, oh, you, treaties are too old to matter. It was, you know, some stupid 300-year-old treaty. What's the significance of that? Treaties are what makes the border with the United States. Are we suddenly just going to say, oh, you know what? I think treaties too old, you know, Forget the borders. We're not going to have borders anymore. No one would say that because that's that's preposterous. You know, yeah. we need a treaty. But when it comes down to honoring what was promised to Indigenous peoples, that's too far back. And, and so that's what we're seeing today is a lack of education, a lack of empathy and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this notion that Canada is up here and Indigenous nations are below that. And so you're in Canada, you have to follow Canadian law. Buddy, I was here 20,000 years ago. And by the way, it is law because the Supreme Court has already ruled on it, right? So if they're looking for that validation from their own system, it's there. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And the wild thing is, is the fact that we need Canadian systems to reaffirm our own rights and make them legal, like we're still operating within a system of colonialism because mm-hmm. I shouldn't need the Canadian state to validate rights that I've had. Like the British created the Royal Proclamation 
Um, and that, that literally said, Indian land title exists. It cannot be extinguished without a treaty. And yet on so many different territories where there are no treaties, I still see a Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's a land claim agreement right now against Parliament Hill with the Algonquins in Ottawa because there is no treaty or, or any, you know, evidence or, or deed or anything like that that said we give up the land and we cede and surrender it to the crown. That's never happened. Um, and so that's the result that we see today. You know, we see that in British Columbia and Nova Scotia, what's taking place in Caledonia with Land Back Lane. It's mm-hmm. this continuous disregard, even for the own laws that their, their colonizers agreed to. They made that law and then went back against it. The Supreme Court makes a ruling. We go against it. Like, I thought these systems were supposed to be superior. Um, but I guess only working. when it's convenient for them. Exactly. The law is only the law when it, it works in, in someone else's favor. And so that's, that goes back to, if we're going to address what's going on, people need a, a lot of education. Um, and I get it, if fishermen are angry, if they're struggling financially, um, like non-Native ones, I get it. But Indigenous peoples are not the enemy. Um, mm-hmm. It's not like our fault, which sounds weird to say. Um, it's just easier to channel your anger at Mi'kmaq than the federal or provincial government. Um, it's easier to light a car on fire than it is to to affect change in, in that sort of way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And and speaking of Canadian systems and whether they whether we really want to place them at a, a superior level in, in certain situations like this, the RCMP has been criticized for just standing by while this violence is enacted. Um, there's been calls for the, um, the commissioner for the RCMP to resign over this issue. In, in your, in your view, should the RCMP, is the RCMP essential to enforcing the rights? Or do you feel that there should not be that reliance on another colonial institution to enforce those? Well, see, the thing is, the RCMP, um, originally it was the Northwest Mounted Police, and they were created by Sir John and McDonald to help uh, manage the Northwest Territories. And there was some conflict with indigenous folks and settlers. Um, and then slowly they became you know, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And they had a huge involvement in enforcing people onto reserves, mm-hmm. but also removing children to place them into residential schools. So yeah. not too many indigenous communities are super fond of the RCMP um, and understandably so given the history of it. And so, you know, like defund the police, I'm all for that. And so it makes it hard to yeah. say like, yeah, I want the RCMP there. Um, I think if the RCMP isn't actually going to do anything and protect the people that are there, like what we've heard, then it's really not helping. Um, and so if, if they're going to be there, then they actually need to be protecting people because if it was reverse, if indigenous peoples were burning down buildings and cars, the army would have been called out. Like, Oh yeah. 
we saw this a couple of years ago in Elsie Booktook um, with the fracking and the people who were protesting there, so much RCMP were deployed. Um, people were arrested. We're not really seeing that right now. And so it's it's just an indication of, of a fractured relationship that hasn't properly been mended. I mean, it's it's never been good. So I wouldn't say fractured relationship. I would say like just a completely broken relationship, I guess you could mm-hmm. say. Um, and so I, I don't know necessarily how to resolve it in terms of like right now, of, of course, you know, the federal government, the provincial governments need to, to step in and, and tell the people who are protesting Mi'kmaq's fishing and hunting practices that they're wrong mm-hmm. um, in your opinion. You're not entitled to an opinion that's, you're entitled to your opinion, sure, but like not when you're arguing against facts. Your opinion is not a fact. Fact is, yeah, this is our right. And your opinion on, well, that's wrong. It doesn't matter, you know? I guess that's what I was trying to get at. Um, but it goes back to education. People need to know, we need to teach them these things. And it's difficult if they're older. I mean, that's a, a bit of a harder group to get at. But then there needs to be conversations of how we can engage older Canadians in those conversations. Um, because we can't just wait until everyone like gets super old and, and then unfortunately passes away. Like that's not a solution. Yeah, no. You know, we have to, I don't want that. I want to work with people now in this moment um, and not just wait 20 years and say like, oh, you know, it's better now. Millennials are 40, 50. No, I don't want that. That's, that's not an answer. Not at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and, and having those conversations, do you ever feel that there's a burden on Indigenous folks to be the ones to start it or be the ones to engage when confronted with violence? I'm not sure if that question makes sense, but I think oftentimes the marginalized groups are expected to take the higher ground, in so to speak. Um, do you feel that there's a burden in this situation for Indigenous folks to engage in a conversation when, I guess, they didn't start all of this? Yeah, it's almost as if we have to argue our humanity and, like, our right to be free of violence. Well, these people, you know, they're tired, and that's why, okay, so we're expected to just, like, accept accept it and, and say, I, I understand. You know, I don't think you can educate someone from a place of anger. Um, but that's because I, I have that gift or, or I'm fulfilling the role of being, of doing that emotional labor, sorry. Like I've consented to that. That's my responsibility mm-hmm. to engage in those conversations and to have them. An indigenous person just trying to like make a moderate livelihood and live their best life is not, and it's unfair to expect them to have to do the emotional labor of telling you why you're being wrong or, or why it's being harmful. And it's really difficult, you know, to expect groups of people who have such such long instances or sorry, you know, intergenerational trauma, like having that exist for for so many different generations and then today we're expected to have just like healed and to have the emotional regulation and ability to control ourselves that we don't like lash out and respond is unfair 
Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I want to scream at people and be irrational and, and just react emotionally, but I know better, but it's still unfair, you yeah. know, um, because you're having these people react in such a, a violent way towards you. And that if you respond or you met that violence with violence, I, I bet Indigenous peoples would probably be treated in a much harsher, unkind and unfair way. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You know, the burden is on, unfortunately, the people who are subjugated, subjected, sorry, um, to the mistreatment. But we see that all the time. It's the same thing with Black Lives Matter. Yeah. Having to say why we're doing this. Um, people having to literally argue for their own humanity and right to exist free of violence is absurd. But yeah. it's the it's the climate that we're in. Yeah, which is um it's very tense. It's very, very uh Tense. And speaking of intergenerational trauma, that is that is a reality for for many indigenous peoples as well as other marginalized groups um, in, in other cultures. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, in your experience, what resources you feel are essential to starting that healing, continuing the healing from intergenerational trauma um, that might be lacking right now? I think one of the biggest things people can do and one of the best things people can do um, is reconnecting with the land. And so I wouldn't just say to Indigenous peoples, I think people who are are having to heal or overcome things in general is reconnecting with the land. Um, You know, the land that you reside on right now, but also the lands that your ancestors come from. Um, What foods did they eat? What music did they like? What, how do they understand the world? Um, How is kinship and community understood from your ancestors' perspective? Whether, you know, quote unquote, good or bad, I'm not, going to say something's good or bad but just to understand those things um and to accept something I had to do within my healing journey was accept the things that have happened to me but also accept how I reacted in those situations afterwards Mm. and so while going through that trauma I lashed out at a lot of people I wasn't kind I was angry and it's not my fault for what happened However, I have to accept how I reacted in those situations and acknowledge that, you know what, I was kind of a crappy person mm-hmm. and, and move on from that and, and work harder to be a, a kinder, gentler person. And I still have to work at that every single day. <laughs> she, she wants to come out of me. Um, but yeah, if, if we're looking to heal, it's about connection, um, having ourselves grounded in something, having those supports around us, whether it's a partner, a friend, a family, a pet, a plant, a lizard, whatever it is that keeps someone grounded and and connected to. We we need something to channel those feelings into. Mm -hmm. Um, Cindy Blackstock, Dr. Cindy Blackstock, sorry, 
Um, she's the executive director for the First First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. Yeah. And I heard her speak once and she said, Indigenous people did not inherit intergenerational trauma. We inherited intergenerational strength and resilience. Wow. Intergenerational love and kindness. And it's because of those things that we're still here today. It's because of, you know, grandparents who took their grandkids and ran into the forest so that mm-hmm. they would go to residential schools. It's the people who spoke their languages when it was illegal, you know, whispers in the dark so that those traditions would still be passed on, who did mm-hmm. ceremony in darkness, like hid sacred items. It's those people, those ancestors. It's why we're still here today. And so we have to focus on the positive and not just frame ourselves in, in a deficit of, oh, I have intergenerational trauma. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously super important to understand that, yeah. but that's not my story. Um, mm-hmm. Even said in a tweet once that she's no longer going to frame Indigenous peoples as healing because our identity shouldn't be centered around overcoming the impacts of colonialism. Um, we're, we're so much more than that. We're so much more than just healing. There is so much strength already within us and turning our attention and and focusing on that is super important you know um it's just like when we talk about suicide prevention like that can be a very scary thing but if we're talking about life promotion you know mental wellness um happiness that just creates an entirely different picture in someone's mind I'm not trying to prevent you from suicide. I'm trying to promote happiness within your life and and how you can attain that in whatever way it looks like for you. Um, That's all that's coming to my mind right now. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's actually, that's really great. Um, I agree that there, most of the framing is about trauma and healing and reconciliation. And it's really enlightening to hear you frame it in a, in a more, in a position of, of strength and, and resilience and um, to celebrate that. I wanted to kind of tie this into the work that you do. In what ways does that give you a positive outlook for that journey of self-determination and what the experience is and, and what the future is for your community? Well, if, if you're working with non-Indigenous peoples and you help help them understand that from a different perspective. It also will inform the way they engage with their clients in the future. Um, If you're a social worker and you're working with indigenous children, um, having the understanding of you need to remind them of of the strength that they come from and not just the harm. If you're talking about residential schools with your students, don't just say all of the bad things that have happened to indigenous peoples. What are those stories of strength and resilience? You know, of course we need to talk about those things, but those stories of resistance should always be what comes afterwards. Hey, you know what, this happened, but this is how we responded and how we managed it and how we overcame it. And so we're not just going to focus on that. We don't want to leave it on a sad note. Yeah. When we're doing those conversations, with people, you know, I say, I want you to ask me your racist questions or questions that you may perceive as ignorant, but you're responsible for your words. And I want you to understand that. 
and, and don't ask a question to reaffirm something you already think you know. Don't make questions in the don't make statements in the form of questions and and ask a question to listen, not to rebut. And if you do all of those things, then yeah, let's have a let's have an open conversation. Um, I'm not a fan of telling people to just Google things. Um, and I, I understand, once again, like emotional labor of why people do that. Um, watch the documentary Social Dilemma on Netflix. And they, they said there, you know, if you type in the question, climate change is, the response that you get to that question will change depending on where you are. And so, if so yeah, I saw that. That was really, that was really kind of scary. Right? It's wild. And so I, I, I got to thinking, you know, if someone asked me, why is it culturally, you know, cultural appropriation to wear a headdress? And I say, Google it. And they go and type in that question. I'm expecting that they're going to access the same resources that I get when I type that question in, but they could be led to a completely different series of websites that are inaccurate. And so I don't like, once again, I don't think people should just do the emotional labor, but let's direct them to the people who are willing to do it. Um, And so you know, there are those, like I said before, there are those of us who want to have those difficult conversations because I've had these conversations with Uber drivers, random people on the streets. Um, and, you know, it's always been super interesting <laughs> um, and it always leads somewhere. And so, and I, I think that's the best way. I mean, it's one of the ways I've learned to do it when you're having those conversations. And I, I think you see that happen so for example, I was in this fellowship mentorship program or whatever. And she was like, make a timeline of indigenous events. And I made a timeline and it was all so negative. It was like all of the trauma and crap that we've been through. And she was like, Carrington, this is all negative. Like where are the stories of, of resistance and resilience? And I was like, huh, am I just like inherently negative <laughs> in the way that I'm thinking? And I had to you know, also take a step back and and acknowledge that, yeah, sometimes I can go into these cycles of negativity, but that's really not benefiting anyone. And so it, it takes time to have to not see ourselves in a deficit, but when we do, beautiful things happen. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you made reference to Dr. Cindy Blackstock. Um, she's a very, very uh, respected figure. Um, are there others that, uh, other figures that have motivated you or inspired you on your journey as someone who, um, is an educator and ad- advocate? Well, you know, of, of course the elders and the story, um, the storytellers that I've, I've met and got to interact with, but I think also like the young people that I've got to, to meet in my in my travels and my work and just having the honor of getting to, to meet them and listen to them. Um, I also think of people like my, one of my best friends, RJ Jones, um, their two spirit, um, their sexual health educator have such amazing knowledge and the way they, they tell stories and the way they engage people in learning is, is something that's always been very inspiring to me. Um, and, you know, I, I think seeing, 
the rise of two-spirit people um, reclaiming space is, is something that has definitely helped the way I, and, and then also inform the way I view learning and sharing. Um, there's so many people, <laughs> but really just community. The, the people that I have everyday interactions with, they really help help guide me, but also check me on my, my stuff when I mess up. <laughs> they call you in too. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Great. Um, and, and to, to kind of wrap things up, um, at Sea Change, community first is the framework and the, and the pillar of our approach in our work. So what does community first mean to you? So when I think of community first, I think that the interests of any organization, government, body, whatever, doesn't matter. Um, it's about the community and what they want. And they need to tell us what they want. They need to set the priorities, identify their needs, and create the solutions themselves. Um, they come first. And any other sort of um, interests or um, you know, what, whatever the word I'm looking for, uh, that, that doesn't matter. That's not the focal point. It's the community deciding and leading. Um, because I, what I've seen a lot with, you know, nonprofits or, or even, you know, the way the government approaches this, it's we have this idea um, and we want to do it with you and, you know, imposing the solutions or what they think will work rather than just asking the community, hey, what do you need? How can I support you in, in doing that? I have these resources, do whatever you want with it without any of these restrictions or limitations or you know, government objectives, just here, take it and run with it. Um, that's what I think of when I hear community first. Great. Well, Carrington, this was such a great conversation. I'm just, you know, I've learned so much from you and I feel that for our audience, this is really going to provide um, a perspective that is unique and perhaps maybe the first time that they see things framed differently than what is in our mainstream consciousness of Indigenous self-determination. So I really thank you for the time and for sharing. And um, I really look forward to, to seeing what you do next. Oh, well, well, and I appreciate it. And I love getting to chat with you too. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. And that concludes today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it with a friend. For more information about our guest, check out the show description and follow Sea Change Initiative on social media for all the latest updates. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly contributor at patreon.com slash see the change. This has been a Sea Change Initiative production, written, produced, and edited by myself, Tanya Ayala music produced by Charles the Emperor. I'll see you back here in two weeks for another episode. Thanks for listening.